This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Michael McGoolahan describes one IA's volunteer efforts to revitalize the small public library's website and bring a user-centered focus to its building renovation efforts through working with blueprints, photos, and architectural renderings, as well as others within and outside the library. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Is the mic working all right? So I'm guessing it's 8.30 in the morning, people are out at the adaptive path event, or maybe you went out. I'm guessing there are some hardcore library science folks in this room. How many of you are, you know, work at libraries or library geeks or just people who love libraries? Yeah, I figured it would be a good crowd. So this will help me out because you guys probably are aware of some of the challenges that libraries face. Um, just let me give you an idea of what we're in for today. I work at uh, Vanguard, as Brandon said, uh, but the work is going to focus on some volunteer work that I do for my small public local library, uh, where I've been a, a board of trustees member for about seven years. <coughs> The takeaways that I hope you'll get out of this are twofold. One is how to deal with a situation where you've got a major design effort that you're undertaking and you've basically got no resources. Uh, you've got to do all volunteer kind of work. And uh, as Leah Bewey was talking about in, one of her, in her presentation the other day, you know, when you're basically a UX uh, team of one. Um, the other takeaway I hope you'll have is uh, some ways to start thinking about, you know, library users today usually don't just go to the physical public library. And they don't just go to the uh, online catalog and some of the online uh, resources. They go back and forth between the two. So one of the challenges that libraries have, especially small public libraries, is how do you bridge uh, the virtual and the physical realms? So uh, integrating those two experiences, I want to talk a little bit about that today. For those of you in the back, I see you've got some laptops and so on. If you want to get uh, access to some additional photos and blueprints and materials that I put out there, if you go to my CrowdVine uh, profile and you scroll down to the area where it says My Photos, it has a link to some of the photos that I put out on the Flickr account that are kind of supplementary to this uh, presentation. So how many of you were at uh, last year's IA Summit and attended Joshua Prince-Ramos' uh, talk on the Seattle Public Library? Keep those hands up. How many of you have maybe seen his TED Talks on that? They've got them online now. And, oh, and how many of you have uh, seen the Maya Design Group's work on the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh? They did that about three or four years ago. Okay, so everybody's seen some of this stuff. I just want to kind of set uh, level set here. What we're looking at today is something very different. The budget that we had is nowhere near the millions of dollars that the Seattle Public Library had. Uh, also, the other thing that's different about this is that this process, uh, this project is still very much in, in process. So I don't have a shiny example to show you at the end of what the building looks like. But I do have some deliverables and some techniques and tricks that uh, hopefully you'll uh, enjoy. 
So our focus today is a 107-year-old library in the heart of the media uh, borough. Media, when I talk about the media library, I just want to clarify something. I'm not talking about a library of DVDs and books on tape and stuff. Media is actual, it's an actual town in Delaware County, which is the suburb of uh, Philadelphia. And it's called media because it's right smack in the middle of the county. So some clever fan of Latin decided to call it media. Uh, it's also, it's, uh, the borough is only about a, a square mile in uh, size, and it's surrounded by the Upper Providence Township, and together we're serving a population of about 16,000 people. This is the uh, interior of the library. Photos are not quite as clear as I had hoped it would be, but uh, you can probably get an idea that it's pretty, this is the main area with all the computers that are out across from the circulation desk. It's a very heavily trafficked library. We get about uh, 8,000 visitors, visitors per month. Last year, in 2007, 80,000 items were checked out, which for a tiny library is a pretty massive amount. And the unbelievable number is that we've only got 10 computers, but on a monthly basis, we have about 1,600 separate logins. People are using the computers like crazy. You go in any time of day, and there's a long lineup, and people are using or, or uh, putting their name on the sign-up sheet so they can get access to the, to the computers. Um, the library is much beloved in the community because it's got uh, very robust children's programs. Um, you can't really see it here, but the children's room has a beautiful mural on it. They do lots of science in the summer programs. Uh, a lot of events going on around children's programming. And uh, people in the community are really uh, in love with those events. I just want to mention one other thing by way of background. There's this curious uh, aspect of the library. It's got a thing called the Media Historic Archives, which is a collection of materials historic materials and, and uh, documents that were donated by the quote-unquote town historian. Now the curious thing about this is this collection is, it sits in the library, it's in a room in, in one of the, the buildings that the library is made up of, but it's not actually part of the library collection. It's owned by the borough and it's manned by a commission from the borough, which means basically it's never open. So we have kind of a challenge here about, well, what do we do about this odd thing? But it's got some interesting historical materials that people do tend to use. So in terms of the project goals, we had uh, some big things we were trying to do here. Uh, first of all, uh, the community's been growing. Uh, it's been changing a lot. We needed to start meeting some of the growing needs that were uh, coming to our attention. We wanted to tackle renovating the building. And the whole reason we got started with renovating the building, just getting that idea, uh, was twofold. We brought in a consultant to help the Board of Trustees start thinking about its long-range planning. And the moment she walked through the front door, she had kind of this ghastly look on her face and she said, my, you have a space problem. Thought she was going to have a breakdown. Independently of that, the borough was doing its comprehensive plan update where they sort of set the goals for the borough for the next 10 years. And before even talk, without our talking to them, they said one of their top goals for the borough was to renovate and expand the library. So we've already got kind of critical mass uh, and a good impetus to, to renovate the building. Um, we also decided around the same time to re redesign the website, which had fallen into disrepair and disuse. And at my insistence, and this is mostly what I'm going to talk about, uh, try to integrate the two experiences. So the end-to-end -end experience, there are you know, all these different touch points. We want to make sure that there, there's uh, integration and continuity between them. And finally, there's been a lot of changes, as those of you who work in libraries, uh, around the service model of libraries, and we wanted to start uh, addressing those. So little library, but a, a big project. This is a slide from a community presentation that I gave last year, just to sort of tell people in the community what the project involved. And as you can see, there were two main tracks the building track and the website track. And one of the things that I have been emphasizing over and over again is that we can't treat these as two separate things, as kind of separate one-off projects. We need to think of it as redesigning the entire user experience. 
Um, and it also needs to be treated as an ongoing thing, right? We're changing the service model, and so you don't just throw out a new building out there and a new website and say, okay, we're all done. It needs to be a process of continual refinement. All right, so that's the background. Let me give you some pretty serious challenges that we face, and I have a feeling some of you are gonna laugh, maybe even through, either through recognition or you just won't believe <laughs> some of the uphill battles that we face. Uh, this is our budget from last year, the operating budget. It's uh, a little bit over $300,000, and I don't know if you can see from back there, but uh, anybody notice the, uh, the line item in the budget for architectural rework or user research or for website work? Yeah, you're starting to get the idea. Um, essentially, we didn't have a budget for it. Now, we had an endowment, but you don't really want to touch endowments if you're in public libraries. That's a big no-no. So if we took any money out of it at all, it had to be uh, a very tiny amount. So basically, we got this big project with no money for it. We also had uh, a library board of 14 people who, like me, worked full-time. got only one library director, only two full-time library staff. Everybody else is volunteers. We wanted to get this work done in about a year's time. Right, so we can start fundraising and get things in place, but we didn't really have much time to do it. So I'm going to show you some uh, uh, things we did to get around uh, the lack of time. Also, uh, you really can't see, but on the left there, I've got uh, a little red box to point out where the media library is. It's part of uh, a 26-member federated system. Right? Delaware, the Delaware County Library System includes all these little smaller libraries. Now, there's good and bad to that. We share resources, right? but at the same time, we share resources. For example, this is a sample page from their online catalog, which, as you can probably see, needs some help in terms of its usability. Unlike the Maya Design Group on the Pittsburgh project, we didn't have the ability to go in and change this. First of all, because there are 25 other libraries who'd all say, oh, I hate the way you redesign that. But secondly, the Delaware County Library System has a grand total of three people on their IT staff. One of them is the director, and the other two are basically desktop support people who are out in the field going to these 26 libraries and fixing mouses and broken monitors and cords and all that stuff. So we couldn't really couldn't go to them and say, hey, can you redesign uh, the OPAC, the online catalog? And then finally, this is something that all public libraries are facing right now. It's like you're trying to build uh, something that's going to stand the test of time, but you know, it's really hard to anticipate what the needs of your uh, patrons are going to be in the next five, ten years. The last renovation of our library was 17 years ago. Imagine if you're a board member there, I had to put myself in this position, say 20, 25 years ago, and you're trying to imagine what libraries are going to be like, you know, today. Now, there was this little thing that popped up in that intervening, intervening time called the internet. <laughs> Those people back in 1980, whatever, had no inkling that was coming, but it's changed everything. We're in the same position today. This is uh, an image of Amazon's Kindle. Has anybody actually held one of these? You've got one? You've held it. You get, you get the idea. So there's, there's all these high-resolution readers that are coming out. Now, as a library board, do we decide that we need to you know, apportion a bigger part of the budget to that sort of thing? Is that the wave of the future? The answer is we don't, none of us have a crystal ball. We really don't know. And things are moving so fast that you just have to create a plan that's as adaptable and flexible as possible. So that was a big challenge, too. All right, so we had a big, big picture, as I showed you earlier, but we didn't really have a vision in the sense of, like, what is our, our end state? And one of the things we did is come up, we had a, a visioning session, an all-day uh, retreat, and one of the things we had to tackle was, was this notion of library tool. Now, when I had to ask a pointed question, how many of you have not heard of the phrase library tools, meaning you, you don't have really any clue what that might be about? A couple of you? All right, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Was it Eric? I, I met you the first day. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. 
Um, what would you guess just from the name Library 2.0 that this movement or this uh, emphasis might be about? Okay, and I think you also said, what, what would be your guess? Somebody said, hey, what's Library 2.0? Not, not sure, okay. I, I imagine a lot of people, especially those of you who are in the library world, might guess that it would look something like this, and several presenters have referred to library thing, which is this really cool you know, online catalog sort of thing that's very user-friendly, and it's got a lot of the elements that you might uh, look for you know, in relation to Web 2.0, it's got some uh, end user tagging, uh, it's got some ratings, the ability to add your own reviews, uh, do some conversations, some dialoguing with people, right? So you might think, well, that's probably what Library 2.0 is, right? Well, we did some research and thinking about it, and we decided, well, not exactly. And that's because it's not really about the technology, it's about the underlying service model. Technology is sort of just a layer on top of it. We went back to uh, one, a couple of the originators of this whole library tool concept, a couple of librarians uh, named Michael Casey and Laura Sebastianik. And they pointed out, and this was really revelatory for me, being somebody from the user-centered design side of things, that the three main principles of library tool were user-centered planning, particip participatory user-driven services, and then this notion of constant and purposeful change. Not throwing out the latest cool widgets on your RSS feeds or whatever on your website just because it's cool and it's there, but doing it because the you've gotten a lot of feedback from your, from your patrons that are saying, hey, we really need this tool. So, and then you know, maintaining the, the pace of change uh, and update, updating things. So Casey and Sebastian conclude that technology, while it's a nice thing, it's not even really for them a primary element of this model. This was a good thing for us to find out, given that <laughs> we didn't have any IT staff to rely on, right? So it all comes down to something that's actually very basic and has been around a long, long time. I happen to have a father-in-law who was the uh, uh, dean of uh, the library science program at Drexel University for about 30 years. And when I tried, he's not very web savvy. He doesn't, he hates the internet. <laughs> when I tried to explain the, the whole library tool concept, he kind of looked at me very skeptically as he does, and he says, you're talking about something that I was teaching in public library administration courses, you know, since the end of time. It's just like you got to know who your users are and what their needs are. It's a very basic principle. So know your community, and that's something that we, as user-centered design pr uh, practitioners, all know about the power of that. So here are some. If you go to some of the libraries that are, you know, seen as kind of the avatars or the at the bleeding edge of uh, library tool implementation, so uh, Seattle Public Library, the Hennepin County or Minneapolis Library. Uh, they will have a lot of stuff like this. They'll have these online forums and uh, book reviews and uh, you know online discussion groups, RSS feeds. But you can also achieve a lot of the objectives of Library 2.0 by using some pretty low-tech methods. And this was a big relief to us because we were already doing a lot of these things. We just need to step it up a little bit more and start getting our uh, users, our, our dialogue, uh, get the bandwidth opened up a little bit more. So basically, Library 2.0 for us, and it may be different, your you know, mileage may vary, is really about establishing a feedback loop and maintaining that feedback loop through the entire process. So that was one of the uh, parts of our vision that was sort of central. Now let me go back, I mentioned in that one diagram that we had kind of these two separate tracks. I want to uh, give you a little background about what happened on each of those tracks before, before I sort of stepped in and said, whoa, wait a minute, we need to start integrating these two things. On the building side of things, we brought in this guy named Rich Beauray, is how he pronounces his name. He is a, a director of a public library system near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he's also a building consultant. 
What does that mean? He's not an architect. He's somebody with a library science background, but he knows a lot about how to figure out what kind of, uh, how to adapt buildings for library uses. So basically we asked him to come in and do three things. Take a look at our current collection, talk to the director and the staff, look, how do you envision the collection growing? How do you want to weed things out? How can we tailor it to the community a little bit better? Uh, same thing with programming. You know, we have certain types of programming. What do you want to add to your library program to, to better meet, meet the needs of the community? Um, and I should mention that he came in, he, did, he interviewed uh, a lot of library patrons as well as the borough council, town, all the big uh, politicos in the area, and the library staff and the board to, to come up with these conclusions. And probably the most important thing he did was came into the library and looked at how we were dedicating different amounts of the square footage for you know, different programming, reference, circulation areas, staff work areas, and then projected what our needs might be five, ten years down the future. So he's kind of a specialist in understanding uh, and translating what building needs are going to be for libraries. We also worked with a, a local architectural firm, this guy Bob Lynn. Uh, that knows kind of the, the, the local uh, vernacular in terms of the architecture. And we asked him to do four things. First of all, we needed to document the current state of the building, which I didn't mention. I, I was going to actually spend a little bit of time talking about that first shot of the building. You saw the, the left-hand townhouse, the original townhouse that the Sprogel sisters dedicated. Then they added on this other building that was a little bit further down. Then they added on this other kind of completely different building. So it's actually this kind of ramshackle conglomeration of three different buildings is what we're working with. So he had to come in and look at all the quirks. There are actually kind of uh, staircases that don't go anywhere because of the way they put the building together. And we needed to get a handle on, all right, where, where are all these things? So they gave us some current state blueprints. He needed to assess our uh, options for expanding the building because we're kind of in a landlocked situation. We're downtown, it's a piece of prime, prime real estate right near the, the main drag with all the strips and everything. But by the same token, there's very, very little parking and there's really no place to, for us to expand because there's a lot of density around it. So we asked him to be creative about you know, what kind of options can, can we uh, pursue to expand it. He's also incorporating uh, 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 Rich Bowray's uh, space analysis and then uh, coming up with, as the end part of the process, kind of some 3D visuals that we can start showing to the community, community and getting some buy-in around what, around what we envision doing with the building. So here's the first floor blueprint, and as you can see, Bob Lynn sort of color-coded um, some of the main areas uh, that are currently in use, and you can see that area E and F are basically parking. The idea of just like, well, why don't you just expand into the parking lot is a big no-no, because we've got these people in the borough, they all work to, walk to the library, and it's no big deal, or they bike to it, it's very close. But in the outer surrounding area, it's basically commuter city. And they've got to come into the borough, which is a very dense kind of area, uh, and find a parking space. So we, get a, we would have a big uproar if we decided to take out five parking spaces. So we also asked Bob Lynn to uh, take a look at this and give us some suggestions. And I don't know if you can read them in the back. It probably doesn't matter. He gave us four options that basically involve taking out some big chunks of parking space, a no-no or uh, demolishing different parts of the existing building and then rebuilding either a one-story or a two-story addition. So that's what basically what we wanted him to do, is give us some idea of what we could possibly do with it. Talking of opportunities, this is the current state of the website. It was built by a former board member who had kind of a web design uh, business on the side. Um, the major problem with the, the website, aside from the design, I mean, you, know, you guys are all designers, you can see some pretty big issues with it. Uh, but the biggest issue is the fact that whenever we needed to update content on it, we had to email this guy who was no longer on the board and is a very busy man working at a law firm in Center City, and maybe he would make the update 
overnight, or maybe it would be two or three weeks, and the event you were trying to announce was old by then. So the library staff really needed a way to update the site on its own. Well, about the time we wanted to shift focus to the website, I was pretty busy with my new job at Vanguard, and other library board members were busy. We, didn't, we don't really have anybody doing web stuff. And lo and behold, I talked to one of my colleagues at Vanguard, and she said, you know, Michael, I'm teaching this graduate class in information architecture at Drexel University, which is a local university with a library program. Do you know of anybody who's got like a website that needs to be redesigned? Because I've got this, I need like a class project. I need to cut my students loose and, and you know, learn what it's really like to have to overhaul a website. And I was like, oh, wait, I love you. <laughs> I can't believe it, just drop right into our lap. So we cut these library students loose and they did, you know, kind of the basic work. They went out and they interviewed uh, the board members, the staff, and the patrons came up with some very high level user objectives. Uh, they also did a, a analysis of the server logs and uh, heuristic analysis, as you can see. It's, it came out pretty bad, um, but it was helpful work. They came up with some basic personas, which did a fairly good job of capturing the main uh, users that we have at this particular library. Um, took the uh, current convoluted site map and straightened it out and gave us a suggestion for how we could streamline things. Even came up with some basic wireframes to start apportioning the real estate. And one guy had a little bit of HTML skills, so he put together this kind of mock HTML prototype. Not great work, but what they did is they kept the ball rolling while we were kind of busy with other stuff doing our library board thing. And it was really helpful work uh, that we could pick up on. So that's what we had. We had all this information from the building consultant, from the architect. We had the stuff from the Drexel students. How are we going to bring this all together? This is where I stepped in and kind of took over the project. And I insist on something that might, well, first let me just say what I wanted to do was uh, set up a user research program. And I insisted on this because we had a lot of information from experts. And we could have come up with a design from that, but we, aside from the stuff that the Drexel students had gathered, which was actually pretty minimal, we didn't have a lot of uh, direct feedback from users. So I wanted to set up a user research program that would address three basic questions. What are people actually doing? Not what we think they're doing or the statistics from the Delaware County Library System suggest they're doing. No, we wanted to know up close and personal. What kind of obstacles or points of pain were they encountering? And then you know, start to broaden out and think about how we can improve the end-to-end -end user experience. So this is the core, the core of what I did. Again, this slide is a little bit dark, but what I did is I, I stole my daughter's little uh, drawing stand from home. <laughs> Set it up in the middle of the library with some sticky notes and markers and a, a portable whiteboard that I had that said, you know, what do you do when you come to the library? And so I would grab people. They thought I was kind of a crazy guy <laughs> after uh, the first couple of weekends. So they'd be, people would be checking out books or finishing up with the computer saying, hey, psst, psst, you want to play with sticky notes? This is really cool. And they'd come in and I'd get them to write down the main activities that they pursued, rate them on a scale of most important, least important, whatever, and then start sorting them according to different criteria, easiest to hardest, things that were mostly online versus manual, things that required staff assistance versus things that they could do on their own. And uh, as we went through each of these sorts, I would be pelting them with questions. So it gave me an opportunity to do some kind of in-depth interviewing. And I would write down their responses and their points of pains or whatever on the whiteboard, take a digital camera, take a snapshot, wipe it clean, do a new sort, right? So you can imagine I gathered lots of interesting data, lots of great quotations, and lots of messy digital <laughs> images that I then had to somehow pour into a spreadsheet. So this is you know, probably the most laborious part of it, translating that into something that uh, I could deal with in, in the aggregate. At the same time, I didn't want to just rely on the, the user interviews. 
I put out this survey using SurveyMonkey. How many of you are familiar with SurveyMonkey? Librarians love it because it's free, right? So I put out this 10-question survey, uh, some quantitative type style questions, and then some open-ended questions at the end to kind of get, their, get a sense of uh, you know, what people's points of pain were, how we can deliver better services to them. Had a great response, sent the link to the survey out to the township council, the borough council, local newspapers, everybody had paper copies of the survey in the library, got over 100 people responding to it, and literally hundreds of quotes that I could use to kind of pinpoint what, people, what was actually going on in people's minds in terms of the, the activities at the library. Now we have this other main group of users at the library, not the patrons, but people who are there day to day, day in and day out, and they're probably our most important set of users, the staff. What I did with them was a little bit different. I took over their staff break room, and they were kind of nice about it the first couple weeks, and then, but after the second or third weekend where I was like asking them, can you move all your stuff out of the way? They got a little disgruntled, but they were actually quite helpful and enjoyed this thing. Basically what I did was a similar kind of exercise. Instead of being there and kind of mediating, I asked them each weekend I would go in and I put up, would put up some instructions for how I wanted them to sort their cards, and they would rearrange them on the wall um, and give me lots of really good information. So the first week I asked them to kind of group the, the staff and the patron activities and come up with uh, some connections between them, uh, grouping them from hardest to the easiest activities, uh, online virtual ones, similar kind of uh, arrangements to what I did with the patrons and a similar kind of rating system. So, several weekends later, gather all this stuff, put in a huge spreadsheet, take a step back, what's going on, what are the trends? I was able to put together some diagrams that I share with the, the library board to kind of bubble up and aggregate this information. As you can see, I put it in kind of a, in this diagram, kind of a bullseye thing. This is a, a revelatory thing for library board because for the first time, we really had a handle on what people were doing. We knew what the core activities were for the library, supporting activities, and also the ones that were, you know, some people do them, they're kind of peripheral to, to the main activities. I also uh, broke it out by four different quadrants, whether they were virtual or physical activities, self-service or staff assisted. And as you can see, one of the things that uh, was really interesting to us is we kind of had the rule of 80-20 showing up. 20, in other words, 20% of the patrons were using pretty much all online stuff. They were basically coming in, checking their email, using the internet, and that's how they looked at the library. But a good 80% of them were still over in that physical self-service area. So a lot of people were still relying on print resources. So we need to uh, maintain you know, uh, good services in that area. Now, one caveat to this, as I pointed out to the board, is you know, there are a few, just a few things in the, in the virtual area. If our website were better, you would expect that maybe some people would start using those uh, uh, services a little bit more. So what we're going to do is start tracking this going forward to see if we can get migrate things up into that quadrant. Uh, the other thing I did with the um, staff feedback, they gave me 49 separate activities they pursue, and this was really uh, helpful for me and the board, because, you know, boards of trustees, they don't come from library science background, they don't really have a clue what goes on in libraries, but when you see a wall that's covered with all these individual activities and broken down, it's like, wow, you guys do a lot, you really come to appreciate your, your librarians. So these are the 17 of those 49 that were the most time consuming, and you can see I plotted them both in terms of the amount of labor and the frequency, and I also color-coded them in terms of any that involved online components or the website. The, the survey and the interviews gave me hundreds of uh, great quotations for the points of pain. What this diagram did is just sort of bubbled up the eight main ones that we kept hearing over and over again. And when I presented this to the library staff at the director's monthly staff meeting, a lot of them were like, oh yeah, we know about that. But a couple of them were like, really? Patrons are struggling with that? So this was a really helpful way to kind of open some eyes 
uh, on all sides of, of the board. <clears throat> the next thing I did is I took each of those points of pain and either I observed people going through those activities or I myself did them. Here's a, here's a sample. We have a, a basic failure of service in, in something really basic. Uh, finding out about library events. If you go to the website, you will see that there's no online calendar, so maybe you'd click on the link for the PDF for the newsletter. You, if you have a dial-up modem, you're going to wait forever because it's like several megabytes. You finally open it up and it's last spring's newsletter, which is no help if you're looking for events. Similar thing, you really can't see it, but if you go into the library, it's very cluttered. It's got you know posters and brochures everywhere, but there's no single thing that just says, upcoming library events. So if you come in on the weekend, you might walk to the circulation desk expecting to ask you know, one of the people, you know, what, what's going on in the library? Well, on the weekends, we have pages and interns who are volunteers from local high schools, and they usually don't have much knowledge about what's going on. So in a fundamental respect, we're, we're just sort of dropping the ball. <laughs> Similar thing, trying to find a DVD online. I did a search for Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and found all these breakpoints where you know, if I were a regular library user, I would just throw up my hands and go, what the heck? I don't even get this. There's about six different places on the, on the site where you cannot find uh, what you're looking for. Similar thing in the physical library. If you go in, there's no sign that says DVDs. You've got to go around the corner and look at the new fiction area. And then all of a sudden you look down, and there are these black milk cartons, honest to God, with <laughs> a bunch of labels from the DVDs in our collection, roughly sorted alphabetically, but there's no master list. There's no uh, you know, computer where you could look up the, the holdings or whatever. So finally, you go over to the circulation desk ask, after you know, they, they give the library cards to the five-year-olds and they check out books for everybody else. You finally get up to the front and you say, do you know if they have the, the, an inconvenient truth? And they look it up online. And about 20, 30 minutes later, they say, sorry, it's at the Marple it's not at our library. So you can imagine the frustration that we're causing just with some real simple things where we're dropping the ball. All right, so I came up with the analysis end to end of what the, those things look like. And now we can begin to experience or integrate the two experiences. I'm not going to give you my long, long laundry list of all the suggestions that I made to do this, but I do want to sort of bubble up some high-level principles that you might be able to use if you're trying to do the same kind of work. One very important principle, thing that we were not doing at all, is bring the, the building into the website and the website into the build. By the first point, I mean, you know, we have a building, it's, it's pretty interesting, it's got a lot of character. Why not have photos of it, of the beautiful children's room with the mural? Why not have maps showing where the re different resources are in the library? You can click on the, on the website and say, well, where is this resource? Um, so that would be a real obvious thing that we could do to help get people having a, a consistent mental model about the building. Uh, bring the website into the building, we, a simple thing we could do is have a kiosk outside of each room. Say we'd have a room dedicated to uh, DVDs and books on tape and you know, digital materials. We could have a kiosk right there that would allow you to search the resource guide of everything that we have in the library, right? Makes sense, right? Why are we not doing it? Well, you know, like small public libraries are figuring the, these things out. So I just wanted to show you, somebody mentioned uh, that I talked to the other day, uh, different vendors are starting to come in with, come out with plugins for the Millennium or Innovative or whatever, where you can uh, click a button on the, uh, you know, you do a search on a book and you find it in the catalog, you click locate and it gives you a little pop-up window. And they uh, enable the librarians to actually colorize the areas where the resources are located. Why haven't they, why haven't uh, libraries done this sooner? <laughs> I think it's largely because the vendors are just now figuring out that this is a pretty important need. Another principle, look for structural parallels. In the back, you probably can't see this as well, but this is the entrance to, our, uh, to the library. 
It consists of, in kind of rotating order, a bunch of 50 cent paperback books that people can buy, a blue tub where you can donate your uh, old cell phone, uh, and a, uh, some posters for like the harp player at the Borough Hall, um, soccer league posters, all sorts of stuff that relates to everything but the, but the library. Now imagine if you treated your homepage like this, right? You come in and you're like, what the heck? So my point of emphasis is if you're going to think of a homepage as a place where people come and they kind of can scan and see what all the resources are that are available and begin to get some wayfinding, right? Here's how you go here and begin to click into things. We should treat our front lobby the same way, right? And it should be consistent. The signage should look a lot like what you see in the library. So you can walk in the door and go, oh, I'm looking for the children's story times. Boom, there it is down the hall. So we're looking for, as we develop the building designs, places where we can model the building on the website or vice versa. Another real obvious one, I won't spend too much time on this, but it's a very old design principle, kill two birds with one stone. We develop a web calendar. Why the heck would we, as we currently do, want to have a print separate version of it that the librarians have to update manually, print out, put up. Just have an LCD display where you put that web calendar right there. So you always keep it synchronized and the librarians have just one touch point to keep things updated. And then finally, a really crucial thing that we need to be thinking about is brand consistency management. Everything from the fonts, the colors, and especially the labeling, the wayfinding devices between the website and the physical space need to be completely in sync. Treat them as the glue that holds everything together. Now, if you follow the glue metaphor, that means you can't get too messy with it, and also you can't let it dry out. I'm not sure how well that analogy works, but you kind of get the idea. You have to maintain that consistency. And also, as you're doing that, it's really, really crucial to avoid quote-unquote library streak. Now, our librarians are actually pretty good about it. Following them around, I can see that they don't rely on a lot of these terms. But the website has some, and it does, they do trickle in. And I'll give you just one example. I watched a guy who was clearly a mechanic come into the library, and he was looking for a Chilton's auto manual. Looked it up online. He was pretty successful. Saw the Dewey Decimal number, wrote it down. But there was this uh, acronym, REF, in front of the Dewey Decimal number. And I watched him walk back around the library and kind of circle around and spend about 10, 15 minutes. And finally, I think a librarian came up to him and said, you look like you're lost. Can I help you find something? And he said, yeah, where's the, the ref section? He didn't know that it was the reference room, which was clearly labeled reference. But REF and reference, it was not in his world, right? So you got to be really careful to avoid any kind of uh, acronyms or library speak that might get in the way of users finding things. All right, I want to sort of wrap things up here pretty soon by showing you, based on the user needs that we came up with and based on some of these guiding principles, what my suggested designs are. These are not necessarily written in stone, but we're going back and forth kind of iterating with the architects on this. For the building, this again is the, the first floor. And what I'm suggesting is a variation on one of the four uh, options that the architect gave us. I'm suggesting that we demolish the existing areas C and J, as he called them. Get rid of that and add a new section off to the side there. What are we trying to do? We're trying to address these top five needs. First of all, people told us over and over again, both in the interviews and the surveys, that you just need more computers. They're always busy. I need to use them. But at the same time, they said, given the, where the computers are, it creates a lot of noise, a lot of havoc. It's right across from the main circulation desk, a lot of traffic, teenagers using the computers to play games. It gets pretty crazy. So what I'm suggesting is that we keep it more or less in the same area, but we glass it in so that the librarians can see, can monitor the activity there, but at the same time, you don't get quite the noise leakage. 
Also, a lot of people said, in conjunction with that, that the library really didn't have very good study areas. So one of the things that I did in the, in the bottom there, the study room, uh, is currently the, the print reference area. And I can attest to the fact that there's about three inches of dust on those old print reference things because all of it's available online. We don't need to use that prime square footage for that. So we're talking about do using the kind of the Borders bookstore model of having some uh, couches and coffee tables in an area where people can study. I also knocked out a couple of bathrooms in the back to put in some study carrots, which we've never had in that library, strangely enough. Really huge need for the library is to have a multi-purpose meeting space where we can have extended programming for, you know, you can have family movie night and sleepovers and all the stuff that other libraries get to do, but we don't because we've got all these tiny little rooms. So I suggested putting this uh, pretty large uh, multi-purpose room in the back. We could have a big uh, TV monitor or whatever to let teenagers play with their Wii or, you know, do all sorts of fun things and then have some sort of sliding divider where you could also um, kind of bring the media historic archive stuff and make that kind of a centerpiece of the library because it really is an interesting collection. So if you have a sliding door, you can either uh, break that collection off and keep it secure or you can open it up for big events. <clears throat> so there's the media historic archives. And then finally, one of the things that makes the library so that such a headachey kind of place as you walk in, clutter everywhere, the staff don't have room to just spread out and put their work. So they wind up putting it alongside the circulation desk where you get piles and piles of things and it builds up and builds up and you're just like, oh wow, I got information overload here just looking at the place. So I decided that we really need to address that by, by opening up a space for the uh, staff workroom and giving them a little bit more room to sort of spread things out and keep it out of the main uh, circulation desk area. So that's the, uh, the building design. For the website redesign, this is a pretty early uh, wireframe, but I want to show you uh, how we're trying to address some of the top needs with that. So the key thing is I mentioned that the staff really need the ability to update the site on their own, so we're going to use uh, Drupal as a, uh, the back-end CMS system. So web-based forms should be too, di too difficult for them to go in, just uh, type in the new content in the form, hit submit. They'll love it. <laughs> Integrating the catalog with our library page. Now we're searching the whole 26-member system, but there's no reason why we can preset the filter to search our individual collection. A lot of people were requesting that. There's the events calendar we were talking about. Breaking out some of the resources to, you know, have, having audience-specific pages in the site is a key thing that a lot of uh, kind of library tool web implementations are doing. Because the people who are looking for information about the story times or resources for their toddler or whatever are not looking for anything near the same, like the same sort of resources that your seniors are looking for. So why not dedicate spaces on the website for that? And then finally, to address the whole uh, feedback loop thing, a dedicated space on the homepage to include patron polls, surveys, stuff like that, and put those front and center. So here's just a look at what the, uh, the architecture would kind of look like. Some of the things were hanging off of it. Some of them point to resources that are specific to our library, but some of them are starting to look out to like, you know, you see I've got podcasts and library things, trying to branch out, open up the, the space so we're having interaction with other uh, library resources. All right, so I already mentioned some of the next steps. We're, we have a, a meeting on June 2nd where I'm going to present a version of this presentation to the public and get their feedback. I'm nervous as heck, but I think, I think they'll agree that, you know, having done the research, we got a pretty good basis to go forward on this. Uh, so we'll continue to solicit the feedback, and then the next thing in the next couple of years is going to be full-time fundraising to make this all happen. Now, how much did this all cost? I mentioned before we were on a super shoestring budget. Basically, we got a lot of volunteer work. We took $2,000 out of the endowment to pay for Rich Beauray's work, and we did the architectural work on $5,000 after we received the grant. 
Let me just close up with a quotation while you're kind of digesting that. Let me mention that I was, I presented at uh, IA Summit 2003, did a presentation on what IAs can learn from the arts and crafts movement in architecture. So Frank Lloyd Wright, the Green Brothers, William Morris, and so on. And it went over really well, but I had a couple of skeptics in my audience. And so what I did with the skeptics is what you should always do with them. I took them out to lunch to try to get a sense of what, what, what was the problem. It turns out they were architects. And the problem was not so much with my presentation, it's just the nature of the phrase information architecture, and specifically that term architecture. They really thought what we were doing is nothing like what they were doing, and we should kind of keep out of their, their domain. It was kind of the, the end message I got. And that has bothered me for the last few years, and now that I've done this project, I know exactly why it's bothering me. Um, it has to do with the fact that architects, while they do have some kind of user-centered approaches to things, they aren't user-centered in the same way we are. Often what you wind up is kind of a generic one-size-fits-all. Well, we know library patrons. We know what it's all about. What I'm pushing for in this project and working with the architect to do is bubble up all the specific points of pain and issues that our community has so that we can design solutions for that, for that set of things. So um, what I hope I've done today is, if nothing else, inspired you to not be afraid to go out and start working with architects, get involved. I bet all of you have a public library within five or 10 miles of where you live, and they all, believe me, desperately need your help and guidance as design professionals. And I want to throw out there kind of one uh, challenge to you in uh, the spirit of Leah Bullion and her uh, exhortation to be a UX team of one. Last year, we invited an architect to our summit. Why don't we get to the point where they start inviting us to their conferences. I think, from my experience, there's a lot that we can tell them about in relation to this quote, all those communication layers that they now have to consider when they're designing public spaces, libraries, hospitals. Believe me, they don't know anything about how to treat that stuff, and little, even less about how to connect the virtual and the physical realms. I think we can be the ones to kind of lead them into that space and really uh, create a productive partnership with architects. So that's basically it. We're down to the, did I use up the whole time? Just about, we have time okay. for maybe one quick question, but thank you. Yeah, I think we have time for one quick question. You know you got it. Still awake, or still asleep? Did some more coffee? I have a question then. Sure. I'm curious, if I'm allowed to ask, um, I'm curious about um, the connection between the research analysis you did and the guiding principles. Were the guiding principles primarily driven by research? Was it driven by um, concerns from the board? What created those principles? The, the guiding principles uh, were partly driven by all the research that we had and observing people and so on, but they were also, you know, as a design professional, I had to think through, well, how, to, how do you address these things? And I kept coming up with the same sort of type of solution, kind of broad categories, and those the more I thought about it, the more they came kind of became guide, kind of guiding principles. So they're not necessarily principles that everybody will follow, but they made sense for our situation. So I'll be in the discussion room afterwards if anybody wants to talk more to me. And there's a bunch of materials out there. They'll be on SlideShare if you want to check them out. Thank you very much for coming. Have a great rest of the conference.